to have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to uh, <coughs> Revelation chapter 6. We, uh, a few weeks ago, between snow, Christmas, New Year's, and all the other challenges we've had recently, we, uh, <coughs> we started what is, uh, what I like to refer to as the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, a lot of people call it the, the Great Tribulation. Uh, I think they're synonymous terms. But when we look at the 70th week of Daniel, what we're specifically looking at is prophetic seven-year period of time that Daniel uh, saw, that he gave us uh, the guidelines for. He told us what it would look like, how it would start, what its purpose was. And uh, it culminates or finishes what God began with the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us that 70 weeks are determined for Israel. That God is doing a restoration of the nation of Israel. Today, currently, we find ourselves in the time of the church. The church is, there's now, according to God's economy, there's no Jew today. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're one. You're unified. Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, man, woman, all the same. In Christ, we have that, that unique uh, period of time that the Bible lays out for us as the time of the Gentiles, when the light that came to Israel would be shared with the Gentiles. So <clears throat> the 70th week of Daniel, we saw last time, begins with a, a peace treaty uh, from a world leader who's going to be acclaimed. He's not going to come on the scene like uh, some sinister bad guy. Everybody's going to love this guy. Everybody's going to be ready to to give him the authority. Everybody's looking to him because he has the answers. And we see in the first four writers, the four writers of the apocalypse, right? We have the Antichrist coming on the scene, promising peace, but behind him follows war. Behind uh, a war comes uh, 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 famine. We always see famine following war. It's not an uncommon concept. Behind famine comes uh, pestilence, death, ultimately. So, you have those four riders that we looked at. So we have the beginning, the kickoff. It has started. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, we're going to see that this period of time is called the wrath of God. So it's the beginning of the pouring out of the wrath of God. So we're going to take a look at uh, Revelation 6, 9 through <clears throat> 17. Uh, if we're lucky, we'll get through it. But one of the things I want to discuss as we look at it is this idea of the day of the Lord and understanding, comprehending scripturally what the Bible's talking about when we look at the day of the Lord. So let's look. Revelation 6, beginning at verse 9, we'll read through 17. It says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer <clears throat> until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers uh, should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The, the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid himself in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, calling the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up your word. We pray, God, that your word would... Uh, we'll just have that rightful place in our lives, that it is the authority to which we align ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would uh, uh, give us eyes to see, Lord, as we study, as we open the Word, <clears throat> God, that you be glorified in and through it. So we lift this time to you, and we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> one of the things that we want to understand, kind of going in, is the concept of the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is not a phrase that is only used of the 70th week. It's not a phrase that is only used of the tribulation period. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is used throughout Scripture every time God brings judgment on a nation. The day of the Lord. It's like the day of reckoning. Your time has come. Numbers up. God's judgment is falling. We look at Zephaniah. Just uh, to get an idea of what I'm talking about. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 17. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities, against lofty uh, battlements. And I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. God speaking of judgment. His judgment coming. Now, it's mentioned 20 times in several different Old Testament books. I think there's eight uh, total uh, prophetic books that talk about the day of the Lord. And one of the things I want you to recognize is that each one can be referring ultimately to the final judgment, right? That final day of judgment. But each one is given when God is judging another nation. Babylon, Edom, Egypt. Throughout the history of Israel, there were several times where God poured out His judgment on a variety of nations who had wronged um, the nation of Israel. And so God pours out uh, His judgment on them. And he he uses this phrase. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. What I want you to understand is the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day when God pours out His wrath. And it is used whenever God does that. At whatever time that's occurred. In Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to, de- and to destroy its sinners from it. So it's a common phrase we'll see going through. Now there's several scriptures. I won't take the time uh, to go through all of them, but I want you to have that in the back of your mind when we look at these next two seals. And hopefully that will help... Uh, understand a little bit of what we're looking at so we look at revelation 6 9 it says so when he opened the fifth seal 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So they are (coughs) slain. These martyrs have been killed because of or for their stance, standing with the word of God and also standing as a witness to Jesus Christ. Those two things are are evidence in what's going on. Now when we look at it, when we look at the phrasing that's put together, this can be referring to all the martyrs that have died throughout uh, the period of time of the church. It doesn't have to. Uh, It's definitely looking at the past. It's seeing the martyrs who are dying for their faith. Because of the context of the Scripture, because we're dealing with the beginning of the 70th week, and we're looking at Revelation 6 through 19 as this great judgment that God's pouring out on a Christ-rejecting world, similar to the judgments that God brought against nations, I think he's dealing with that period of time specifically. But what he's telling us about them, he's saying, look, these guys have lost their life. This is nothing new. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, it says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. So looking at the 70th week of Daniel, everything else is a precursor. Everything else is a picture, a glimpse of what happens at the end when, when time is going to be wrapped up. He says it's, it's different than it has ever been. Verse 22, it says, And if those days were not cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. So that that all flesh, nobody would survive this period of time except for the fact that God makes it seven years. Otherwise, the end of seven years, they wouldn't last. And it's important when we go through Scripture and we study Scripture that we understand the term the elect can refer to three different groups of people. It can refer to the church. It can refer to the nation of Israel. It can refer to tribulation saints, people who come to faith during the tribulation period. So just having that phrase doesn't allow us to be dogmatic about what is going on in this particular particular place. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, speaking of the hall of faith, all those who have gone before us who have lived out their life in faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 36, it says, Others, others suffered mocking and flogging Chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. So the concept of martyrdom has been with us from the beginning. The idea of people suffering for their faith. Two things specifically, suffering for standing up for the Word of God and their witness of Jesus Christ. Those two things, these particular martyrs that we're looking at. Let's look at the reason for their martyrdom in the book of Revelation. What does it tell us? It tells us in Revelation 1.9, it says, I, John, so we know the author, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What's John saying? I'm suffering just like you guys. Why is he suffering? Because he's standing for the word of God and for the testimony 
of Jesus Christ. Just like we're talking about the martyrs under the altar here, this vision that John has. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they conquered him, the enemy, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto the death. That's the victory of the martyr. The victory of the martyrs, he is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, holds fast to the word of their testimony, that's the word of God, and did not cling to their own lives. In Revelation 12, 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, who stand with the word of God, and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the same thing, standing for the word of God, and standing for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And those two things are still under attack by a world in opposition to God. Right? We, do we understand that? The, the whole world is in opposition to what the Bible says. We don't like it. We don't like what it says. We don't like <clears throat> that it calls sin, sin. That it calls us to, to uh, uh, trust in a Savior, in Jesus Christ. And so the world is opposed to that. In Revelation 19.10, it says, I fell down at the feet, or at his feet, to worship him, John falling down before an angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, who hold to what? Who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's kind of an important phrase. Just chew on that for a minute. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Most of the time when we think about prophecy, we think about foretelling the future, right? But the book of Revelation tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did. Jesus said when he gave the commission, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in singular name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's the second thing? Teaching them the things that I have commanded you. What Jesus said, what Jesus taught, what we see the Word of God laying out for him. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And then Revelation 24. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. Same thing. Why were they beheaded? For the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. They, they picked a side. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Resurrection of those same martyrs that we see. So why are the martyrs killed? Because they stand for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. They stand for those two things. And they're crying out, right? Listen to the cry of those from under the altar. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord. Don't lose sight of what that means. O Sovereign Lord, God who is in control. I'm a martyr under the altar, but I know ultimately, God, you are in control. That this is part of your purpose, part of your plan. You are sovereign, God. You are in charge, O sovereign Lord. But not only are you sovereign, you are holy and true. 
completely other and absolutely right. Absolutely right. You're holy and true. How long then before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Now I want to remind you, go back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. He had two brothers bringing their offerings to God. You remember? Cain and Abel. They bring their offerings. The Bible says that, <clears throat> that Cain was a worker of the field. Abel was a shepherd. They brought their offerings to God. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was rejected. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us why. We can surmise, perhaps, that Abel's being a gift of, of sacrifice of an animal, animal was a greater picture of Messiah, and that's why it was received. But the Bible doesn't tell us. <clears throat> doesn't tell us their attitude when they gave. All it says is one God received, the other God didn't. And God said to Cain, Cain, why are you downcast? Why are you upset? Why are you mad I didn't receive your offering? If you do right, I'll accept it. So there was a way for Cain to be right with God. <clears throat> but Cain is developed a bitterness toward who? His brother, right? His, we all know the story of Cain and Abel. Yeah? Everybody with me? Everybody's tracking? <clears throat> so God says to Cain, look, Cain, God knows what Cain's going to do. God says, look, Cain's sin is at the door of your heart right now. And its desire, sin's desire, is to rule over you. But you, Cain, should rule over it. So Cain kills his brother. The story goes on. God says to Cain, God comes and finds Cain, says, Cain, where's your brother? Cain gives the famous line, What, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to Cain, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The Bible teaches us that the shedding of innocent blood, innocent blood cries out to God for justice. That a land can be defiled simply on the basis of innocent blood not being dealt with. That's why God created government. Government's almost the next thing that comes on the scene after family. That God says, hey, government has the power of the sword to take care if innocent blood has, has been shed. So we have this idea laid out. Now, what do I want you to hold on to? The blood cries out from the ground. What do we have here? The martyrs whose blood has been shed. Innocent blood shed who are crying out to God. How long? How long till you will avenge? Because it will be paid for. Just because God hasn't moved immediately <clears throat> doesn't mean that God's not ultimately going to require payment. In Psalm 79.10, here's what David said. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. David's crying out to God, how long? Till you judge them for the wrong that they've done. How long till, till there will be a judgment on innocent blood? Zechariah chapter 1 verses 13 through 16 says, And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said, Cry out thus, says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. 
And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. What's he saying? God's saying, I use nations, other nations, to judge my people who are in sin. But they went beyond. And they're going to be accountable for the blood they shed. For the things that they did. Luke 18.7. We read in Luke 18.7, it says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? The cry of the martyrs is, How long, O God? How long till You avenge? Because just because God doesn't immediately... We should be thankful, actually, that God doesn't immediately judge sin. But just because He doesn't immediately avenge doesn't mean He won't. So what is it that that God lays out? We have here, under the cry, we have a cry, an appeal to God for revenge. God, avenge us. There should be a price for shedding innocent blood. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Listen to what Hosea said. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. What's God saying to the nation? He's talking to Israel now, because Israel is just as guilty. And he's saying, look, man, the blood is crying out from the ground. The blood is crying out from the ground. And God's response to that has to come. And whenever I think about that, I can't help but think about somewhere in the neighborhood of 59 million innocent lives. And if you think that blood doesn't cry out from the ground for God to judge, you're crazy. Because it does. It cries out from the ground. Isaiah 26, 21. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. My, you, if you think, I mean, we're just, if we just talk about our own blood guiltiness, there's plenty. But if you look at the blood guiltiness of the world, how much innocent blood is shed. And still, I want you to understand, the 20th century was the bloodiest century for martyrs of the church than any other time previous. And the 21st, I don't think, will be different. What do I mean? I mean, people are being killed for what? Standing for the Word of God? And the testimony of Jesus Christ. And their blood cries out to God for judgment. For judgment. And the 70th week of Daniel is a fulfillment. So what does God do to comfort the cry of those under the altar? Look at verse 11. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves were the first thing they're told is their righteousness the righteousness of god is their position before god what what do i mean he gave them white robes 
He gave them white robes. Their battle, their fight is over. Revelation 7.14 says, I said to him, Sir, you know, the angel asked him, Who are these people? So he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. How How are we cleansed? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. So it was granted in Revelation 19.8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So she's able to clothe herself in white. Righteousness of Christ and then the deeds. What were the deeds of the saints who died under the altar? They stood for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are the things in their position... Then they're also given rest, right? He says, rest here a little longer. Revelation 14, 13 has this incredible scripture, often used in in funerals of the righteous. What does it say? I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from now on. Why? Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. That there's an end of the battle. And so the Lord is saying to these voices under the altar, rest a little while longer. Hold tight. Why? Your number's not finished yet. All those who are going to die haven't died. All those martyrs haven't come uh, to fruition. He's saying the remainder of the martyrs are coming. Part of the plan of God. There is perhaps a specific number or a specific point in time in which God will stop and say, that's it. No more. And as we study our way through the 70th week of Daniel, it is very possible that what we're looking at is the utter destruction of all Gentile believers. Which Scripture seems to indicate when we look at the Jewish believers, a third of them are going to make it. A third of the nation of Israel. Two-thirds will die in the fire. One-third will come through. Will come through. Again, the judgment of God being poured out. The day of the Lord is not a happy day. It's not a grand day. It's not a glorious day. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment when the blood of the innocent cry out to God Almighty. So that's the fifth seal. The fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs under the altar. What altar are they under? Probably the golden altar. There's lots of argument back and forth what altar it is. There's two altars. Remember we talked about the tabernacle on on Sunday. You have the golden altar. That's where prayers are offered. You with me? And you have the the brazen altar. That's where the the sacrifice is burned. So I feel like it's under the golden altar because of the cry. The cry, how long, O Lord? What is that? That's a prayer. It's a prayer to God. You know, the Bible is going to tell us as we continue looking at the judgment of God in the 70th week of Daniel, God is holding bowls of the prayers of the saints. And one of the judgments is when He pours those out. When He pours out great bowls of the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. So I think... that's what we're looking at, the the prayers of the saints crying out to God, how long? How long will the wicked prosper? 
How long does the wicked get to win? How long are we going to be lambs led to the slaughter? Isn't that what the Scripture declares? Yeah. How long? And God says, just a little longer. Just a little longer. My coach always told me that when I say, how far are we running? Just a little more. How long are we going? Just a little longer. Marine Corps did the same thing. How long is this hump? Just a little longer. What's the point? Why, why are we told that? To persevere. To endure. We always got a little more in the tank than you think you got. What's God's word? Just a little longer. Just a little longer. Hold on. Just a little longer. So these are called the rest. Then Jesus opens the sixth seal. In the sixth seal, it says in uh, verse 12, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. So, whatever's going on in the sixth seal, you're not going to miss it. Right? Okay, so when we look at the sixth seal, I want you to remember what we talked about in the beginning. The day of the Lord is, a, is an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It's speaking about God's judgment. Every day of the Lord that ever occurred throughout the Old Testament was a precursor to the great day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, the final judgment. Everyone before was in, in some way a minor picture of a major reality of God's ultimate, ultimate judgment. So when we come here to this, to this section of Scripture, there's several things we want to understand. What's the extent of this judgment? What's the extent? What's affected? Well, the heavens are affected, right? He talks about the sun. He talks about the moon. He talks about the stars. He talks about the sky. So there's a cosmic involvement, right? All Everything around them. And then there's also a, a, a part where the earth is involved, right? Every mountain or island is moved out of its place. So we have the extent of it. So let's consider the extent for a moment. It says of the sun... Uh, that, that the sun is going to become black as sackcloth. Now that's not a new concept in the scripture, guys. Isaiah 13.10 The stars of the heavens, their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark. As it's rising, the moon will not give its light. Joel 2.10 The earth quakes before him. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. Joel 2.31 The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel 3.15 The sun and the moon were darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. When we talk about the moon. Isaiah 13.10 again speaks of the moon. Isaiah 24.23 says, Then the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Talks about the stars, right? The stars of the heavens. Matthew 24.29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Immediately after what? The tribulation of those days. So the, the doors are swung open in Revelation chapter 6. The judgment of God is beginning. The outpouring of God's wrath over a seven-year period of time. Because when we talk about the day of the Lord, it's never a 24-hour period. 
The day of the Lord is a period of judgment. Has a beginning, has an end, a period of time when God's judgment is poured out. Matthew 24 says at the beginning of it, immediately after the tribulation, immediately after as it, as it, it's beginning, the doors are open, there's going to be this cosmic upheaval. You with me so far? Cosmic upheaval taking place. The sky is going to be affected. Isaiah 34 says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O people. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. Their slain will be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains will flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away. It's talking about the stars. Shall rot away. The skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall like leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. All sounds familiar, right? All sounds familiar. Even when we look at the earth. Jeremiah 4, 23 and 24. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. And I looked at the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills were moving to and fro. Jeremiah, talking about the of the Lord, judgment of God, this this cosmic upheaval that's going on. Revelation 16.20 says, Every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Similar language that we see here in Revelation chapter 6 as we look at this section of Scripture dealing with verse 12 through 14. The sixth seal, cosmic upheaval. It's similar language every time the Lord, the day of the Lord is being discussed in the Old Testament. Every time God is talking about bringing judgment against nations, He uses the same language. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look at it for a minute. There's two possible explanations when we look at this. There there are those who want to hold to a literal fulfillment. So if we're holding to a literal fulfillment, we're seeing a global earthquake, stars fall out of the heavens, the, the, the light of the sun going out, and the moon becoming like looking like blood it's going to going to turn red we all recently talked about blood moons right that the the book that came out a little while ago so there's the possibility to to look at it and say this is all literal but in order to do that i have to ignore every other place where this scripture has come up in the bible i have to pretend it hasn't happened before what do i mean in Isaiah chapter 13, I've shared with you from Isaiah 13, two different times, talking about the day of the Lord, talking about the sun turned to darkness, the moon going out, the stars going out, cosmic upheaval, everything around us cosmically changing. That was a scripture that God used to speak of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment against Babylon. Isaiah chapter 13, 10 through 13, the stars of the heavens, their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. I will lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make uh, people more rare than fine gold and mankind more than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 13 is when God judged the nation of Babylon. 
God judged Babylon. When God judged Babylon, what I want to say is that the sun did not literally go out. The moon did not go out. Stars did not fall from the sky. God was using hyperbole. Maybe some people have a hard time with that. Hyperbole is an exaggeration used as an illustration. What's the illustration? God's saying, I'm going to turn this nation upside down. Now, did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Babylon was turned upside down, conquered by the Medes and the Persians. It's a fact of history, judgment that God brought upon the nation of Babylon. But when he describes this day of judgment, he uses the same language. Then when we look at Isaiah 34, another section of Scripture that I shared with you already earlier this evening. Draw near, O nations, give ear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over to slaughter. Their slain will be cast out. The stench of their corpses will rise the mountains will flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven will rot away. The skies will roll up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall as leaves from a vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Again, the day of the Lord fell for a nation called Edom. God judged the nation. When he judged the nation, it wasn't that the sun went out, that the moon went out, that the stars fell from the sky. What he's saying is, you're not going to miss this. Any more than you would miss the sun going out, or the stars falling from the sky, or if the entire earth shook, or if every mountain moved, and every island was out of its place. You wouldn't miss that either, would you? You're not going to be asleep and wake up and go, what happened? There's going to be an incredible upheaval. And this upheaval that he's speaking of was the upheaval of a nation, Edom, being conquered. Earlier than that, it was Babylon being conquered. In Ezekiel 32, verse 6 through 8, same or similar language is used when God judges Egypt. It says, I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood. The ravines will be full of you when I blot you out. I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the earth with a cloud. The moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. What was he doing? He was changing. He was conquering. There was a conquering of Egypt. This specifically is is a conquering of Egypt. Earlier than that, we were talking about the conquering of Babylon, the judgment against Babylon. I just want you to stay with me. I hope you're tracking. But the same language being used, not necessarily meaning the sun goes out or the moon turns to blood. But what it is saying is there's a cosmic upheaval, an incredible political change that takes place as nations are put down. Specifically, so far, we looked at Babylon and Egypt. But I also want you to consider one that you can read and, and study on your own. David used similar language about his victory over Saul. Now we're all familiar with that, right? Saul hunted David for 10 years. When David wrote a psalm expressing the the victory that he had in the Lord over 
Saul that that part of his life was over. Now he's king. There's been victory. Here's what David said. Then the earth reeled and rocked. 2 Samuel 22, 8-16. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds and a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And the channels of the sea were seen. Foundations of the world laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his breath of his nostrils. But what David's talking about is God's deliverance, how God delivered David from Saul. He's using this language to say, you couldn't miss it. Could you have missed it? When we read it, you don't miss it. What happens to David and his sons? They, they fall in battle. They get hung on a wall outside Bet Shean. God delivers David. David didn't have to kill Saul. God took care of Saul. It was God's judgment day for Saul. The day of the Lord against him. Every day of the Lord looking forward to the ultimate, the final, the end, when all things are brought to fruition. Everyone a small picture of the ultimate reality that we're reading about in, in, in Revelation 6. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 and 28, same language is used as Jeremiah looks over the destruction of his people. When he looks over the death of of those who didn't have to die, who God said, lay down your arms and go willingly, but but Jeremiah said, if you fight, you're going to die. Lay down the sword. Stop. This is God's judgment. It's judgment day. God's judgment has fallen. Stop fighting. If you don't fight, you live. That's what Jeremiah told the people. They threw him in a dungeon. They hated every word he said. So they fought. And they died. And when Jeremiah looks over the corpses of his people, this is what he says. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens there was no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking and the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land will be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn, the heavens will be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. You see what Jeremiah is saying as he looks at all the dead of his brethren. The language he's using is a, is a language of, of I, don't know, I, I don't know another word, maybe there's a better word for it. I try to use hyperbole, but the idea of picturesque language describing an incredible judgment that has fallen, and you couldn't miss it. As Jeremiah looks over the dead. Maybe you, I know I've been fortunate to get to read a lot of books in my life and some of those books the way the author describes the event he's not really telling me what everything looks like he's using a language to help me understand man this is a cosmic horrific event 
And what better language to use for a cosmic and horrific event than the sun went out. Moon turned to blood. The stars all fell out of sky. Because we would all look at that as what? A horrific event. Man, what's going on? Cosmic upheaval. What's happening? And I think that's what is being laid out for us. Why do I think that? Because what I think is, when we look, let's go again back to Revelation chapter 6, having discussed some of those things. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. Full moon became like blood. Stars of the sky fell to the earth. A fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When it's shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. What's he saying? Man, the judgment of God is coming and nobody's going to miss it. And it's horrific. And all those other ones that, uh, that I gave you as examples, those are all minor leagues compared to this judgment of God. Those are all small potatoes compared yet similar language used in each are you are you guys tracking with me similar language is being used now i'm not saying there's no way to look at this as a as a literal event or a, a literal fulfillment and that, in fact as we go through revelation we're going to see where a real earthquake takes place and the difference in the language you with me you're going to see it because he's going to talk about the destruction how much of the city fell down? How many people died in that earthquake? It's different than using this cosmic language. So as we look at what, I, what he's saying in the sixth seal, the judgment of God has come. Just like the judgment of God came against Babylon. Just like the judgment of God came against Edom. Just like the judgment of God came against Egypt. Just like the judgment of God came against Israel. Just like the judgment of God came against Saul. But this judgment is against the world. So all of those were small. Compared to what we're going to see as the seals are open. As the trumpets are blasted. As the bowls are poured out. It's going to be judgment on a cosmic scale but then look what the people do because it's the same language that you see if you study those other judgments same language they use in the judgment in verse 15 of chapter 6 it says in the kings of the earth the great ones the generals the rich the powerful everyone just in case you think he's not talking about all kinds of people slave and free talking about all kinds of people not just rich not just poor not just powerful, everyone, every single person, all the people who dwell on the earth, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, saying, fall on us, hide us. We want to escape the wrath of God, the judgment of God that is coming, the judgment of God that has come. For in verse 17, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In Isaiah chapter 2, I just want you to hear the same language. And the people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty, 
when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver, their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. They'll enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Similar language again, Hosea 10.8, The high places of Ayen, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow up from their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. Because the judgment of God is not a good thing. It's not good. Grace of God, good thing. Mercy of God, good thing. Compassion of God, good thing. Judgment of God, bad. And this is the judgment of God being poured out. In Luke 23, 28, Jesus at the crucifixion, you're going to remember this phrase, He turned to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. When did that happen? 70 A.D. When what? occurred when Daniel prophesying about the the destruction that would occur prior to the 70th week of Daniel said that the people of the prince who is to come are going to destroy the sanctuary they won't leave one stone on another you go to Israel today that's what you see there's no temple today why because the judgment of God came and the people in the city cried out to the hills fall on us hide us From what? The wrath. The wrath of God. The judgment of God. The day of their wrath is come. And no one would survive. What did we read earlier? Except those days were shortened. No flesh would survive. Nobody would live. Hebrews. We've been studying on Sunday. Just a couple of the scriptures I'll read as we close out says this, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we would drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, judgment from God, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Look, nobody has to be a man standing in that place crying on the mountains, fall on me. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. God has provided. God has provided mankind with the opportunity to respond. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to get to that in a couple weeks on Sunday morning. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what we're reading about, guys. The wrath of God. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse is the punishment? Do you think that will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? 
who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. God's not trying to use fear to bring people to him. He's just telling you what's coming. There is a debt for the blood that has been shed. And God will collect it. But he has provided an escape in the grace of God. Finally, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of, of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, reverence, and awe. For our God is an all-consuming fire. So when we look, what's he saying? This shaking that we're looking at, that we read about is the shaking of everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken remains. What cannot be shaken? God and His kingdom will not be shaken. And we have an opportunity, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, would not face the judgment of God, because Jesus Christ took that judgment that we're reading about. Jesus Christ took that judgment at the cross. So we don't have to. That day will come. Jeremiah told the people that. Isaiah told the people that. Hosea told the people that. Malachi told the people that. Eight different prophets told the people that that day would come. And that day came for each one of them. There's one yet remaining. That day will come. But we have not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made a way. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.